Welcome to Wayward Muse. I'm your host, Stephen. Here we cover anything and everything related to the restaurant industry with award-winning guests. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like, subscribe, and share it. These episodes are made possible because of you, so consider donating at yourwaywardmuse.com. As an extra thank you, we are giving you 10% off our entire store catalog that includes custom bar gear and exclusive merch. Just use code Listen to Your Muse and start saving. As always, 20% of anything we make goes to charities that support our industry in these crazy times. We are cutting a check at the end of the month, so shop today. This episode is brought to you by Salsa Matcha by Chef Rishi. Salsa Matcha is the nutty, do-anything sauce you didn't know you needed. It hails from the state of Veracruz in Mexico. It'll completely shake up your taste buds and your cooking. Brighten up your dishes with three different expressions of this must-have, flavorful product. Personally, I put it on everything. And I mean everything. Have it delivered anywhere in the U.S. Just go to yourwaywardmuse.com slash matcha. Hello and welcome to the Wayward Muse podcast. I'm sitting with the National Ambassador for Abasolo Whiskey, Cesar Sandoval. Caesar, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me. I'd like to dive right in and help people understand what makes Abasolo so different from other whiskeys they might see on the market. Yeah, so Abasolo whiskey is a new world whiskey. There's obviously categories. There's old world whiskey and there's new world whiskey, which we can get into later. But it is a new world whiskey, unlike any other. I know it sounds cliche, but it is the only... So we first start off in Gilotepec de Abasolo, Mexico, which is close to Ciudad de Mexico. And we use an ancestral corn named Cacahuacintle. It's a non-GMO corn. So we take the approach of the raw material being the main focus first. And we take this ancestral GMO corn that you can find in famous dishes, Mexican dishes like pozole, this hominy corn, and we nixtamalize it. So nixtamalization is a beautiful Mesoamerican cooking technique that predates 4,000 years and what it does, it's an alkaline solution, so high pH, and it breaks down the pericarp, the outer shell of corn. And what it does is releases aromas, flavors that you cannot get without nixtamalization, but also it makes um, corn malleable to make it into masa. So tortillas, tamales, uh, trayudas, tacos, all the beautiful things that we think of when it comes to Mexican uh, dishes, it comes from nixtamalization. Nixtamalization is a huge part. So it not only releases great flavors and aromas, but it also increases calcium, iron, and vitamins that you wouldn't get otherwise. Then it's a double distilled copper pot distillation. Um, and then it is aged outside, which is another unique thing. So we age our whiskey in new toasted oak and used American oak outside in the beautiful hills of Gilotepec very high elevation. It's around 7,800 feet in elevation, which makes it one of the highest whiskey distillers in the world. And so only a light roof overhead, but no walls. And so that Mexican terroir just really lives, breathes, and interacts with our whiskey, which is a beautiful process. So you end up getting this amazing juice of Abasolo whiskey. And you can taste it right away. When you take your first sip out of a glass of Abasolo, you get this immediate sense of I'm not having a whiskey that I've ever had before. And for a lot of people, the only introduction they ever get to corn whiskey might be one of my personal favorite shooters, which is mellow corn, high, powerful, strong, slightly sweet. 
you'll definitely know you had it the next day. What separates uh, Abasolo from the type of corn whiskeys people might be familiar with in the States? Yeah. In the sense, so, in flavor. Right. Yeah. So as I mean, just like you said, mellow corn, fantastic bottle, fantastic design, everything as well. Um, I also drink it, but um, it's different because it's a hundred percent corn. So out of the whiskey category, less than 1% of this huge whiskey category is 100% corn. There's not many. And people always say, well, kind of like mellow corn, right? Well, mellow corn is not 100% corn. Great juice, but not 100% corn. So, so that changes that as well. There's always either malted barley or rye or whatever it may be. So 100% corn, only when doing the nixtamalization process that we talked about, that's in any spirit category. No one's ever done that. And uh, so as far as flavor, uh, like you said, you know, you're, you're having an abasolo and maybe a change it. You think of agave a little bit, cause you get vegetal notes that you usually don't get with whiskey. And that might be the outdoor aging. Um, you get a little minerality paprika. I get a lot of chamomile tea or black tea notes. Um, and so, you know, some people might say, oh, it's, so it's a young whiskey or, you know, younger, and that could be true, but Remember that the focus is the corn. You know you're having corn or masa or tortillas in this whiskey. You know there's corn in here, and that's what we don't want to lose. So I always say the corn is the cake, and the wood is the icing on the cake. The wood should complement the whiskey, not overtake it. Because, you know, we could have done a whiskey that's 10, 12, however many years old, and get those vanilla, wood, you know, all those notes that you get. But we want to make sure that we don't lose the corn. So it's great to respect the raw material and look at it in the sense that we look at mezcal nowadays production. And so that terroir, the plant is the most important thing and how you treat it. So that's kind of what we're doing with corn. Well, all of this talk about this corn whiskey is making me thirsty. I have some right here. So I was wondering if you wanted to just cheers. Absolutely. Salud. Salud. I forgot how good this stuff is. Oh, yeah. We have... I think um, one of the great things about this whiskey is the applications it can have in cocktails. Um, I've seen it played around with two different ways. I used it in a dessert style drink in which I added um, sweetened condensed milk and um, uh, cacao from Chihuahua uh, okay. to create a literally chocolate milk style beverage. The corn just added this like suppleness to the drink that I really wasn't expecting. I was trying to find the right whiskey for it. And then we had just done a recent Abasolo tasting and I was like, oh, this will add a depth of flavor to it. So pair that with a little bit of Amaro and you, it was one of the best dessert drinks I've I've That's had. Awesome. I've also used it in um, a mulatto Manhattan. A mulatto is a, a style of chili. And then I had Averna. So mulatto chili syrup, Averna. And then this created a, a beautiful style of slightly spiced Manhattan ratio on that was two half half. And I think that it just shows the versatility of your spirit that it can play in so many different ways, as well as just being enjoyed. I personally have, uh, you know, cheap uh, ice tray ice and mm. Abasolo whiskey. And I'm, I'm a happy guy over here in Chicago. Nice. Yeah, dude, that uh, Manhattan variation sounds fantastic. It's like a... Mole Negro Manhattan, just because you have the Averna, like a black Manhattan, but mm. you have those chiles. That sounds wow. delicious. I'm going to have to steal that name from you. But right. <laughs> do it, do it. Well, let's it. put it in a book. Let's do it. Well, Cesar, now that we understand the spirit, let's understand a little bit more about you. You're based in San Diego and have had a, a pretty storied career there. Could you walk us through your journey from 
being a, a San Diego bartender to becoming the national ambassador for Abasolo whiskey? Yeah, of course. So I'm originally, my whole family is from Ciudad Juarez, which is the border town of El Paso, Texas. So I was born in El Paso, Texas, but came at a young age to San Diego. So I consider myself Tejano, but also San Diegan. And um, yeah, my first, I was actually, so I was saving money to buy a drum set. I'm a musician. And so I needed a job to obviously get some money. And my first job was uh, Chili's. So a very, you know, sophisticated restaurant called Chili's. And I started there as a host. And so once I took that job, I kind of never looked back. I fell in love immediately. And I think it started prior because my family and I, we used to cook. I mean, we still do, but me, my two sisters and my mom, that's who, who was at the, the house. So we would cook together while listening to music. And obviously that Mexican hospitality is what can I get you to drink? What can I get you to eat? You know, I don't have much, but what I have, I'll give to you sort of. And so it kind of started there and I loved cooking. Um, I loved drinking in high school. I was, uh, the, always the bartender. I would rather not drink and serve people, even though I was just making, you know, whiskey ginger ales or like, you know, vodka cranberry. I was still always behind the bar. That's where I kind of enjoyed, even though I wasn't a bartender yet. And so Chili started and it kind of set me off and I just started kind of climbing up the ladder. Eventually I left there, uh, did a couple other gigs. And when I was 19, this restaurant was like, we need a bartender. Like our bartender broke his leg. And can anyone do it? And so I like raised my hand. I was like, I can do it. And like, oh, you know how to bartend? I was like, yeah, I do. And I mean, I wasn't a bartender, but I said I could. And I wasn't 21. I couldn't really legally serve, but I was like, well, whatever. Like, we'll just go with it. And I did that for about six months. And then I was like, okay, I want to bartend. So I went to all the restaurants that I want to work, work at and ended up working at La Villa, which is kind of where I cut my teeth. And then um, that kind of noticed by a very good bartender here in San Diego called Adam Lockridge. And he kind of noticed what I was doing. And he's like, hey, I have a project that I'm launching with a couple of people and I want you to be part of it. So eventually he took me under his wing. And that's kind of really where not only the craft, but then the rules of hospitality, you know, like the customer is not always right, but he has the right to be like he's paying for that. Right. Right. Like and so. Sometimes I'd be like, but that's wrong. And he's like, hey, you know what? They have the right to be, just let it go. It's like, no, no, nothing like that. So Adam really took care of me and taught me a lot of things, classics, moderns, how to build cocktails. And that's kind of where it took off. And from there, I started taking um, trips to distilleries and things like that. And one of those trips was down to um, Jalisco, to Tequila Jalisco, to visit Fortaleza Tequila and Don Fulano and Arete. And so I did that once and I really got close with, with the master distillers, didn't really think about it. And I went again. And after the second visit, I think we really connected because, oh, you know, I've seen you before, you know, how you doing Caesar, whatever. And then one day I actually get a call from Sergio, the owner of uh, Don Fulano. And he says, hey, man, are you coming to the industry trip next next month? And I said, no, I think I'm, I'm staying in San Diego. I got to save some money. And he said, well, let me let me pay for your flight cruise over. And I was just thinking about an opportunity of maybe working, working with us. And so we did, uh, we go to the distillery, there's people there. And I thought I was just also a guest. And so as he's giving his little presentation to the group that's visiting, he says, Caesar's going to give you a tour of the distillery. And, um, you know, if he doesn't know anything, no worries. I'll be here waiting for you guys. Just come back and let me know if you have any questions. So he put me on the spot right there and then. 
And I did already kind of know the distillery, but, you know, I hadn't got in depth. So did the tour. Everyone liked it. You know, I was nervous and came back and everyone, he was asking like, you know, how's he doing? Oh, he did great. Like, that was so amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So from there on, I started working for Don Fulano as a ambassador for them, helped out Fortaleza, helped out Arete, just these small craft. And that's really where I fell in love with, with agave spirits in general, but also being an advocate and being a brand ambassador. So did that. And um, while doing that, um, I got asked to open a new restaurant, which was at the time El Dandy. There was two master dist- or two masters. So there's two um, Michelin star chefs, Antonio Abruzzino and Luca Abruzzino, who were opening El Dandy in San Diego, first of its kind in San Diego. And they asked me if I could be the bar manager, bar director. And so a little nervous because I had never done anything Michelin star or any anything to that caliber. And um, once once I got there, then they're like, okay, well, you know, you're going to design the bar. And I was like, wait, design the bar? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're going to work with our architect and our intern, like our designer, and uh, you're going to tell them what you need. And so I was like, all right, well, this is another challenge that I had never, I, I thought I was just going to build cocktails and kind of, you know, run that program, but to design a bar, because it was just a blank slate, it's just cement. That was a, a huge challenge. So um, started investigating, started looking at whatever it was, YouTube videos or architect design books or whatever it may be. So that in itself took us um, about 11 months to design a bar. And uh, and yeah, I mean, it worked out. It was fantastic. Unfortunately, COVID happened, man, a year, right a year after we opened. And so we kind of had to stop that process. And, um, you know, the chefs got stuck in Italy because of COVID. And throughout that process, I got reached out uh, through Camille, uh, known as La Loba. And she reached out to me and she says, hey, I know you're working at Old Dandy. I know you work for Don Filano Tequila. I just wanted to check because we're launching a couple new products. I'm wondering if you're interested. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's, you know, let's meet up after we meet up through Skype and all that good stuff. Um, you know, we ended up talking and we both, the more I researched Casa Lumbre, which is the company that makes Abasolo and Nixta, that is when uh, I was thinking this might be the right fit. And so as as Camille and I started talking, I didn't see any bottle design. I didn't know anything except for it was Dr. Ivan Saldana was a master distiller, which he created Ancho Reyes and Montelobos, which two products I really love. It was you know, field to bottle mentality, ethos was great work, um, the whole environment. And um, yeah, after after researching that, they researched me, we had maybe three or four meetings. And then I said, well, everything looks great. I just need to taste this juice. So I tasted Abasolo, not in the bottle, it was just out of a plastic bottle. And I fell in love with it immediately. I was like, this is whiskey. And they're like, yeah, this is whiskey. And I'm like, how, why, you know, I started asking about the corn and the process. So I fell in love with it. And then also we're doing this as well. And it was Nixta, uh, the licor de lote. And that just brought me back to, to my house. Uh, my, my mom makes a tole. So it's a masa chocolate drink, you know, water. And so it just nostalgia just hit me. It was just Mexico. It was perfect for me. I just felt like I was in love with the product and I'll never sell anything that I don't love. That's just who I am. I don't care what the price of the money is. I have to, I have to love it personally. So yeah, that's how I ended up here at, uh, I was solo in, in Nix as a national ambassador, but, uh, 
yeah, there's been there's been a lot of uh, a lot of lot of ups and a lot of challenges, but it's been great to to grow and learn and be here now. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I think a lot of people can relate to that journey. My first uh, restaurant wasn't a restaurant. I worked at Burger King, so that was where my journey began. I can uh, put together a Whopper in 0.3 seconds. Uh, I, I try to keep that skill preserved just in case I ever need it again. Um, but I think that's the way the industry is. You kind of find your way and you see things that you really enjoy and you just learn and you grow. I'm interested about the restaurant that you worked at was called something Dandy, El Dandy? Il Dandy, yeah. Il Dandy, okay. Yeah, Il Dandy. It was an Italian restaurant. So my question for Il Dandy is, the what were the struggles like of going from blank space to bar build out? And what lessons might you have learned trying to create a space? As far as the space, you definitely have to work. I mean, if you're not in in architecture or interior design, then you need to work with someone. You cannot be proud and say, I'm going to do this all by myself. So I had the help of Agustino Sanino, an amazing guy. And so he helped me out with my vision and then he would bring me back to reality or limits. So, you know, because when you have a blank canvas, you know, you can always add more more paint and more paint. So you got to know when it's done and and what your limits are. So um, he helped me out with that. But some of the challenge were obviously... You have to start all new accounts with with um, with companies, whether that be the refrigeration company, the keg company, the beer company, and all that. So opening accounts is it's nothing crazy, but everyone wants to be there because they hear a new restaurant's coming. So you have everyone just, hey, I could do this, hey, I could do that. So you have to look at pricing and all those good things. So you always start with a certain limit, and we said, okay, here's our budget. And well, just to break it down for you, you always go over budget. That just, you cannot stay in budget. So challenges were, you know, getting these, you know, you're spending dollars $80,000 on, on something and, you know, you better not mess it up because you only have one shot pretty much. And so um, those were things while still completing the vision of not only the interior design, but the owner who has this vision of this is going to be sleek and great design. And I don't want to see this. And then it's like, well, I need a beer tower here. No, no, no. I want it to be completely like open space. And like, well, where am I going to pour beers from? You know? So those are the little challenges of realistically having a agronomical space that you're, so my whole thing was that bartender should not be able to move. He should have with everything in reach. So that way he's just cranking. And also he's not bending down. So you know, I put foot switches for the hand sink instead of actual hands. So that way I could just, you know, stomp with my feet. Everything was was there. It was a pretty much like a cube. It's a very sexy and beautiful bar and, you know, long grates. So you just have a space and all these little things that, that I think of personally, but as a owner, you wanted to look a certain way. So having that clear communication of what do you want and what do you expect and what I want and what I expect, like, why did you hire me? So uh, communication and like everything, relationships and anything that you do is very, very important. So pre-assessing everything and um, putting it on paper and knowing what you're going to do and having a plan to get there. A lot of people just talk and talk like we're going to do that and just hope it works out. But you need to have a detailed plan of what and when you're going to do it. And if he agrees before you even purchase anything. That makes a lot of sense. Did you start off with... um like a blank slate, like literally, was there a restaurant there before? Did you have a bar top? Did you break it all down and then redesign it or? It was a completely blank slate. It was actually a bank prior to being a restaurant. 
Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, so it was really cool. So you just see it and you see vaults and you see kind of like cashier area and things like that. So it doesn't look anything like a restaurant. And then once we did it, it was in a building that um, I think it was a 30, 30 story building. So there's big columns here and there. Venting was a big issue because it's going into offices. So the kitchen, just, just to show you the, the real quickness that it, something can turn ugly. I think they ended up spending like $30,000 on something that could not fit in there because of the vents. So $30,000 down the drain. You can't get a refund or anything. So it was a bank. I didn't have that vision yet. I didn't have anything to work with. So it was a complete blank slate. So it was cool to design that. But again, it was what materials and colors are going to look. But Agustino Sanino did most of that blank work. He just, he's like, you got to tell me if this works for you. Like, does it actually make sense to have you know, a wall here or a mirror here, or do you need it for shelf, you know, for bottles or for beer, whatever it may be. So, you know, they wanted to have this, these things, bottle displays on, on the, on the roof, like coming down from the ceiling. And once I saw the size, I'm like that, I can't reach that. And so they were saying, well, that's how we designed them. Like we're, and I said, well, you got to stop the design right quick. We need to, we need to make sure we're, we're lengthening down. If not, I need to get a ladder, which again, another process while you're cranking cocktails, you don't want to bust out a ladder to go reach out some bottles. So again, communication and, um, and no, it was completely blank slate and that's, it was the beauty, but it was also challenging because you can't imagine where things are before. So no limits, but sometimes you need those limits. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting understanding, especially going from a building that wasn't designed to be a restaurant. That vent thing must have been heartbreaking. They were pissed. <laughs> they were yelling. I don't want them. to imagine two Italian Michelin chefs being upset about something. I it's not an area I'd like to be in. Yeah, no. And, and everyone was Italian. So it was three owners, all Italian, two Italian chefs. Italian managers, everyone was Italian. I was the odd man out and I was trying to learn Italian, but you just hear yelling. And sometimes you go and you're just so traumatized that you're like, guys, please, like, what are you guys fighting about? Like, we're just talking. You're like, okay, sorry. Like, I love that. When know, I went to Italy, same thing. I was, I stayed at this um, organic vineyard and I was working there and the wife and the husband, I thought they had like a terrible marriage. And then I would go in and they would just be like having a glass of wine or Amaro. And they'd be like, oh, you guys are just chatting. That's just, and I, I love that. It just shows that they, they really care about everything and especially like a passion project, like a restaurant, one can only imagine. And are there plans for Il Dandy after the coronavirus pandemic has subsided? So they that was their second restaurant. Their first restaurant was uh, Chivico 1845. It's in Little Italy, which was, it, it is extremely successful. And um, so when we did this, we wanted to kind of up the ante, make it fancier, more exquisite, make this, this food. Um, but once the chefs got stuck in Italy and I left for, or I was leaving for Casa Lumbre for Abasolo and Nixta, they decided to rebrand. And so COVID happened, you know, everyone gets furloughed and all those things. And so they rebranded to Chivico by the park. So it's the same concept in Little Italy, but now it's in it's in Bankers Hill, which works out because they knew and they said it, you know, we can't call this ill dandy if the chefs aren't here. Like this is the, the vision of the chefs as well. So they rebranded to Chivico and it works great. And they're they're having uh, I think much success. They just opened back up on Friday. So I wish them nothing but the best. And I still stay in contact with, with Dario. We ride motorcycles together pretty much every Sunday. So, you know, great relationship. And again, one of those things 
not only communication, but I always tell like, I tell everyone don't burn bridges, which a lot of bartenders were used to doing just because like, well, it's so easy to just quit a job and find another, you know, and in regular time. So not burning bridges is always a good thing. When I left uh, to, to work for Abasolo and Nixta, I gave them, man, I think it was a two month notice. I said, let's train someone and make sure everything's going good. But obviously COVID happened and that's that, but, but yeah, good people. Well, good to hear that they were able to pivot. That's one of the most remarkable things about this whole pandemic, I think, is how quickly the restaurant industry has adjusted and said, no, we're, we'll figure this out. We'll take it in stride and have kept moving on. I'd like to talk more about your time at Casa Lumbre. Are there brands just Abasolo and Nixta? No. So Casa Lumbre, um, actually, so Dr. Ivan Saldana uh, is the master distiller. Uh, he has his uh, PhD in biology so he had his he did his thesis in agave and so again from jalisco an amazing person always the smartest man in the room and always the most humble but um so casa lumbre started started off with uh, they launched monte lobos um and so monte lobos mezcal for those for those of you that don't know and that launched uh had great success so dr ivan Saldana, his partner uh danny schneeweiss and uh, moises gondi they uh, they launched Casa Lumbre with the whole aspect of, you know, pretty much capturing the biological, the cultural and the sensorial aspect of Mexico in spirit form. So Montelobos happened, great success. And then it was like, well, what do we do next? Right. And so then Ancho Reyes comes out, um, the original and then Ancho Reyes Verde. But it, and, and now we're on to Nixta and Abasolo. But if you see, once you start seeing the pattern is always the raw material is the number one from Mexico. My Mexico is the most, well, one of the most uh, diverse countries as far as ingredients and everything. So a lot of things started. And so mezcal, uh, agave plant, Ancho Reyes, Chile Poblano from Puebla. And now we're into cacahuacintle, corn, because maíz, uh, Mexico is the birthplace of corn. And I think that's one of the big things that that we talk about. Some people might think that it's from Iowa or Kentucky or Midwest somewhere, but Mexico is the birthplace of corn. There's no if, ands, or buts. This is proven. And it came 10,000 years ago um, from a plant called Teocintle. And Teocintle, the size of your pinky, um, sort of the size of your pinky and the kernels were very tight and compact, hard as a rock. And you would only have like seven, eight, maybe pods, but again, you couldn't eat them. And through years and years of, you know, it's it's a relationship of the Aztecs and the Mayans that had with this crop. They were selecting the best. Eventually, after thousands and thousands of years, we now get cobs that look like what we what we think of corn as today. And now you're looking at 600, 700 kernels per cob instead of six or seven. And then eventually the nixtamalization came, but you can eat and feed. And it was used as currency. It... um. It also, it had such an importance that it was known as carne de los dioses, meat of the gods. So maíz is fundamental to Mexicans, Mexico, and the rest of the world. But it started in Mexico, and that's what we're really trying to make sure people understand. And for the people that don't know, Montalobos makes some of the best juice that you can get out of, I personally work at a mezcal bar, and the Montalobos Tobala blows my mind every month that I go back so and make good. sure it tastes just as amazing as I remember. So if you see that wolf on that bottle, yeah. definitely grab it, add it to your collection, as well as all those other things. I mean, I can't tell you how many different bartenders reach for one of the Ancho products just because they know, oh, this is 
this is going to tie my drink together. This is going to yeah. give it the oomph that I, I didn't have before. Yep. So amazing lines of products and to add Abasolo to that lineup is impressive. And I'm sure there, there are other great things in the works that we'll get to see soon. And I just can't wait to keep trying all the different products that you all have. Awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Great company, um, great leaders. And I've, I've already in this short span that I've been with them, I've been growing a lot and learning a ton. So I'm very thankful to be here. Abasolo also has a, a great relationship with um, the farmers. I would take it since you guys are so close and terroir driven product. Exactly. Yeah. So we actually, we're one of the rare ones where we don't have any like intermediaries or middlemen because uh, what happens is usually the middlemen probably does the least amount of work and is getting the most money. And so the farmers aren't getting enough money. So what we did is we have zero middlemen. We work directly with our farmers. So our farmer, Juan Carlos Carmona, he is now the fifth generation farmer. And so they've had that farm um, not only for a long time, but before that it was his dad. And before that it was his dad. So it's been in the family for hundreds of years. And, um, they just, that's what they do. They're not, they didn't, I guess they didn't choose that profession. They were born into it. And so, and now Juan Carlos Carmona and his wife, they're about to have a beautiful little daughter and she will now be the sixth generation, you know, La Reina del Maíz. So it's a thing. They, they take great care of the crops. Um, we've been out there. They're only growing maíz and this cacao simple because it grows in Nevado de Toluca, Calimaya. That is where cacao simple grows. So Cacao Simple only grows above 6,500 feet in elevation, and that's why it does so well there. So again, non-GMO, they're not adding any chemicals to it or anything like that. And it's all locals working for, for this company and for this corn. So they get financed um, a year ahead of time, actually, as well, just to make sure that they're they're being good. They're, and so everything is about not only sustainability, but for the for the corn, but sustainability for our farmers. And so those are the most important people in in to making abasolo honestly without them we wouldn't have it so you know they also produce uh cacao simple corn well they used to for pozole but once whiskey came out they started producing for us well it's great to hear that you have a product that's sustainable as well and have a great relationship with those that create it so the question i ask almost every well every guest that i've had on the podcast is given the year that we've had what about the industry do you think we should change and what do you think we should preserve? What you what we should preserve is the hospitality exactly. So being happy to be there, cooking delicious food. People always tell me, do you think, you know, restaurants and the hospitality industry will survive now that everyone is learning how to cook, learning how to make drinks at home? At the end of the day, yes, you go to a restaurant to be served because of the hospitality of that that service that people provide. People want to be served and all that. So we need to make sure we keep our chins up, that hospitality initiative that the guest always comes first. The food can be mediocre. The drinks can be okay. But just like, you know, everyone else says, it's how you make them feel that they'll remember. So keep that positive energy. Remember why we started in the hospitality industry, which will will never die. I, I can guarantee you. I'm not worried that it'll die. I'm very saddened by how many restaurants have closed, but it will never die. And as far as um, to change, I would say for those that have, you know, bigger goals or dreams or want to pursue, pursue something that they've been thinking about doing, and maybe, you know, the restaurant is just kind of a step to get there, to go ahead and pull that trigger, to 
you know, life is short. This has taught us that family is important. And so whatever your values are, don't think you're stuck in one place for X reason. Just go ahead, follow your dreams and take a chance. I mean, you know, you know, the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. That is true. Obviously make a calculated risk, but, uh, but do it, pull the trigger and do it and follow your dreams. We have a lot of creative people out here that want to build bands or make music or you know be in movies whatever it may be and again it's a it's a tough time but coming after this i think people will realign and shift their goals and kind of go for it hey y'all steven here really hope you enjoyed this conversation with cesar as much as i did if you like these podcast interviews with industry experts give us a share a subscribe a like a comment Or I don't know, keep it all to yourself and walk around all smug because you got the plug to elevate your craft. See you next week with another award-winning guest. Ta-ta. Oh, and isn't this song amazing? Hold up, let me check who it is because they're so good. And I'm sorry for the background noise. My puppy doesn't know I'm recording a podcast. The song is Festivities in Belize by Rage. You can find them on the YouTube studio library thing. Bunch of free music bunch of cool artists. See ya!